welcome to the Social Distance Podcast and today's episode, an interview with Evelyn Nairacie, who is a Kenyan and she works for UN Habitat and she's based in Nairobi. So I asked her first to give me a description, as I have with most people in this series, I asked her to give me a description of the city she lives in. So Nairobi is a um, is a happy city. Let me call it that way. Um, is a place where you go, or someone find themselves in, and there's a lot of movement of people. There's a lot of social life in Nairobi in terms of people having their coffees, people talking about business. You know, it's a busy place. Also, with some of the streets, you know, full of uh, vendors and uh, hawkers selling their wares. Um, there are high end hotels in the middle of uh, the city. They are, you know, middle, um, you know, status hotel or middle class as well as the low, uh, you know, side of, of the city. So this Nairobi is a city for everyone. Um, and I happen to also work with this agency, UN Habitat, which is also well known for its work on urban development. And uh, within the city, also the, the neighborhoods or the settlements, we have the informal settlement uh, where, of course, carries the majority of the population, almost, I think, two thirds of the population uh, in Nairobi as well as now the upper class uh, or middle class and the upper class uh, kind of estates. So as I said, Nairobi is a city for everyone and a pretty happy city, uh, easy to move around using public transport. So you, you like it as a city to live in? It's, it's be, a very nice place to live in. And apart from that, it's one I can call also like, you know, a professional hub hub by the sense that there are a lot of international organizations based in Nairobi. And this international organization bring a bigger, you know, critical mass of professionals. And this makes it really great in terms of interaction, in terms of connection, and not just for business, you know, for, you know, technical minds, you know, um, as you know, also Nairobi and, and its environment also is planning to have the Silicon Valley. That tells you uh, in terms of technology access and so forth, it's, it's a big hub, not just for Kenya, but also even in terms of connection to other regions of Africa yeah. and global. Yeah. Yeah. So how has the city changed during the COVID-19 crisis then? Like, if you go to your window, say, and look outside, does it look different? Does it sound different than it would on a normal day? It's very different. Um, so this COVID-19 has been a big challenge uh, to Nairobians. Um, so Nairobi... It's a, city, it's a city for everyone and, and a place where it's like the heartbeat, it's the connection point, um, it's the engine for, for Kenya, so to speak. So the whole mobility of people like coming from rural areas, you know, for businesses in Nairobi and people out of Nairobi for business and travel, this has almost come to a halt. Um, we've seen this kind of, you know, escalating from one day to another as the government, of course, and the Ministry of Health putting measures to avert situation on reducing risk for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, so if you go to Nairobi, um, if you come to Nairobi at the, at the moment, you find almost like empty streets. There'll be few people passing around, people, of course, with masks. We didn't used to wear these things. And this has been a challenge, not just in terms of the extent to which social distance can be kept is also an issue. Nairobi is full of people always, but for now it's pretty empty. 
So no business really can go on. And for the little that are trying to survive, it's just trying to, you know, do the little they could probably to, to, to make a living. But it's totally not the same city that we know. So some most of the businesses have shut down. Some people have traveled up country, those who are able to travel early, you know, but as we are speaking now, there's, uh, of course, the cessation of movement from with a curfew from 7 p.m. to 5, to 5 a.m. in the morning. That means nobody can move out of Nairobi metropolitan, including the place where I'm living. Um, people cannot come in from other areas as well. So this has also complicated in, uh, issues, though they allow food and other uh, necessity uh, items to come in. But this has totally challenged the way we live and access to food and other items. In terms of prices, this has also been affected greatly. So it's no longer business as usual. It's no longer the city uh, we know, but we, we hope we can be out of this very soon. Yeah, so during the curfews, so the curfews between 7 p.m. and 5 a.m., does that mean you can't go out of your house at that point during that period? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You you. So the curfew is uh, 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, that means you cannot go out. You cannot do any business uh, at night except for just essential services. And this okay. constitutes, of course, the... The, the officers in charge of security, the medical uh, staff, um, media personalities and the media um, uh, group, among other uh, category yeah. of those they're, who they're, are considered really the media, essential. Yeah, the, the media are essential, essential workers. <laughs> yes, they are essential workers. And I think it's really good in terms of giving us the highlights of what is happening and keeping us uh, abreast with what is happening not just in your neighborhood, but what is happening across the country. What, what does it feel like for you um, compared to your normal day? I mean, are, are you, is it, is it worrying? Do you, do you live with family, for instance, or are you on your own? Uh, so for now, I'm staying with my elderly mom and niece. Um, mm. So normally I will have other nieces coming uh, in from different places, from where they're schooling, or where they are working um, and have a very, you know, big number interactive space at, at my own place, my own house. Yeah. But unfortunately, the situation is totally different. So one, we have to restri totally restrict our movement. You just have to go out and, you know, get some food or anything that is so essential. And largely, you know, uh, keeping uh, tabs with, you know, the government's restrictions and, and the regulations. But all this is because of our own fear and uh, and also the need to really limit the risk of, of contracting this uh, disease. So it's no longer the, the way we used to live, uh, but we understand and above all is about, you know, taking care of oneself and, and their loved ones. Do you sense that most people in the city who you come into contact with take it seriously? Um, I think uh, for colleagues and uh, and uh, family members and friends whom I know um, take this very seriously, mm -hmm. um, and this can be you know attest to the fact that you know we, we call each other, we we check on each other, um, even for colleagues and and we've had you know like work meetings and stuff, but we cannot necessarily meet. We cannot afford to meet. We cannot afford to interact. We cannot afford not afford to have our social gathering and doing business as usual. So this tells you and that we all affirm the challenge and we are all trying to take uh, precautions. 
However, this also may be a bit different, of course, with the communities living in informal settlement uh, and, and those who are poor and less uh, privileged. Um, they have to go, get out and maybe get some daily uh, uh, wages from you know work that they do on a daily basis to make a living. We've seen this becoming very challenging, even for communities that we've interacted with before. I've interacted with some of the communities in places like Madare or Kibera, and these are communities that are really struggling to place a meal on the table. So, are those communities that are rural? Uh, they're not necessarily rural. Of course, even within the rural areas, the curfew still applies. So this has impacted greatly in terms of, for example, women getting out to go to their farms and making it back uh, on time, uh, particularly for those who are doing uh, the agriculture, the crop farming. Some do not have their land just like where they're staying. They have to go out and farm and, and, and do the you know planting and so forth. Even access to seeds becomes a problem. You know, access to other farm inputs become a problem. You know, the curfew gets you out and you're in trouble. You know, urban areas is the same as I said. They they live on you know hand to mouth, like struggling to make a living, and therefore they have to get out and go to places. Sometimes even transport becomes a problem to ferry them back home. And we've seen instances of police also people finding themselves on the wrong side of the government restrictions and being punished. And we've seen a number of those people also now have you know, found themselves in quarantine center in, and having to foot for their bills because they did not follow the, the rules. So it's how best maybe what are the trade-offs in terms of, you know, meeting the, the guidelines by the government versus, you know, providing for their families. And this has not been very easy, though I, I understand that the government could be trying and other agencies to provide support uh, for some of these uh, families that are struggling. Right, yeah. Under normal circumstances, would you spend a lot of time um, with your extended family where you grew up? Yes, I do uh, spend uh, some good time and quality time uh, when I find it uh, back home where I I was Mm. born. I still have my parents um, living in my rural home um, and uh, my other siblings, uh, some also married within the neighborhood. Um, So because of my work uh, schedule, I find time either once in a month or or twice in a month to visit home. Uh, apart from just interacting with them and uh, doing stuff, family stuff, I also uh, serve as a, board, a chair of a board uh, uh, of management in a secondary school, um, one of the secondary school in my rural home. And uh, this gives me a lot of um, excitement when I meet the girls, um, who most of, the, of whom are, are Maasai girls uh, from that school, but also I do uh, do some visits for uh, some counselling and, uh, you know, talks with the other girls and uh, some of the schools around uh, in that place. So that gives me a lot of opportunity to interact with the women, interact with the girls, and be a motivation and, and try to mentor them also as they, they grow up. This is something that I, I fully lacked when I was growing up, but I see the impact and I'm, I'm very proud to find such moments when I have opportunity to do so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope that uh, things return to normal um sooner rather than later and you're able to you're able to do that yeah i pray so yeah um uh, just a couple of other things that i wanted to ask you um what are the other challenges that people from vulnerable populations typically face because it's it's hard to know what those people typically face because sometimes they're invisible right okay um so unfortunately these communities are 
are not that invisible even even if you know the covid-19 challenge was not there is only that the covid-19 has complicated and even made this uh, pop- vulnerable population for example living in urban informal settlements in living in rural communities to be more visible particularly in the urban uh, context where you have the informal settlement with people who rely on daily wages in a living or place their meals on the table um in has opened up like the curtains to the realities that there is always a forgotten community that now with this, the challenges of covid-19 and the you know the need to limit the risk of infection among this community becomes truly challenging one because of the setup of the housing and the challenges they face access to basic services like water you know like uh, uh, you know food you know shelter becomes an, an, an issue and we've seen even some of them even being thrown out of their homes because or the little homes where they live because they cannot even afford rent you know some have, have, have we've also had cases of you know uh, you know people struggling and even others you know queuing up for food in some of the with the support of the politicians and other institution even even presenting still you know presenting them a challenge of risk of infection because they crowd and the number is really big so to me this population particularly women who bear really the burden of taking care of their families you know both children and ensuring that they have food on the table this has been really a big big challenge for them i know this situation also faces the rural community uh, for most uh, areas maybe in kenya now our planting season is not easy for them and we've just come i, I mean this covid-19 came at a time when we are just trying to you know the a challenge of the locust and their fears maybe the locust must still might still come back but even for the the the, the challenge of planting the food the, the the seeds accessing that and getting the farm inputs this has really been a challenge but i think the situation has even been worse for the urban uh, informal settlement so it calls for really rethinking on how the urban planning is done it really you know need uh, proper thinking in terms of you know social security and the extent to which such communities can be secured in in situation like what we have now and i think this covid challenge has become like an eye opening uh, for most of of us and particularly i know it sends a very strong message to government and other development partners on what is it that can be done to improve you know the level of preparedness both from a health point of view but in terms of social security and you know community resilience in terms of shocks both in terms of human shocks in terms of you know and other natural shocks like what we have with covid-19 um we've also had cases um, of women being um, you know violence against women also increasing both in terms of sexual violence physical violence and i've been following the you know the television and getting the numbers and and the statistics and it's pretty shocking that this is skyrocketed because of the whole situation where you find people staying at home they are no longer doing business as usual and they have to eat but also you find because of those interactions and you know the nature of how things have been and maybe some of these things not even being communicated now they've actually gotten worse and we have this lots of number of cases being reported uh, to the police in different places and and the numbers are not really good uh, going by the the statistics that i had from the media do people have faith that that the government will be able to help sufficiently yes people trust uh, in the government uh, um, in terms of capacity to deliver 
there's still a lot of uncertainty, definitely, um, in terms of what will happen and whether we will get um, to a level where we say, for example, uh, to the route that we've seen other countries, you know, struggling with the whole fight, be it Italy or the numbers in the U.S. or other places. But we really hope that we don't get there. Um, the government has uh, demonstrated, you know, its willingness, uh, uh, you know, trying to put measures in place, trying to en enhance its surveillance. We get uh, briefs um, every day of what is happening. Um, the government has been really clear and uh, uh, given clarity on what this really means for all of us as, as Kenyans and, you know, called uh, on Kenyans to really follow the guidelines that have been provided by the Ministry of Health and, and, and Government uh, Security uh, to ensure that we, we really stay on track and avoid situations where the numbers will, will skyrocket um, because of lack of, you know, protection and, and, and avoiding risk of, of infection. So. I think there's trust in government, but I think there are factors that are pushing, you know, uh, those who have who are less privileged, for example, to go out and look for food, to go out, for example, and seek medical health. And I think the challenge, for example, for health institutions that have both, they are receiving both those who are infected or maybe they are likely to be infected by corona virus and still managing the other diseases or the other disease burden, be it malaria, be it uh, those with cancer and other ailments really complicates matters. And maybe this could also limit the extent to which, you know, those who are feeling maybe easy to access health uh, care, they might probably shy to be able to do so. So the government has really tried to demonstrate, you know, capacity and inspire confidence uh, among uh, uh, Kenyan population and to myself, I, I, I say so. Um, but probably there are lots of other social and economic factors that are really still belaboring the population and pushing uh, quite a number of people out and risking their lives in terms of uh, getting new infections. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of a lot of what is going on, but I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. <laughs> no problem. I look forward and thank you for giving me a chance to share. Thank you. Bye-bye. Evelyn Narasia is a specialist in gender and land tenure issues and she works for UN Habitat based in Nairobi, Kenya. <laughs>